Well, uh, this made headlines last week, didn't it? You probably remember it. President Trump suggests injecting disinfectant to treat coronavirus. Uh, this is the extract from the news article from Al Jazeera. During a White House press briefing, Donald Trump appeared to give quite unorthodox suggestions about using disinfectant or sunlight to treat the coronavirus. After widespread disbelief at his comments and after a backlash from doctors and health professionals, he is now backtracking. Trump blamed the media and reporters for misunderstanding him and insisted that he had made the comments about sunlight and disinfectant sarcastically, even though his delivery during the briefing seemed to have no hint of sarcasm. I don't know what you think of that, but um, if we're to believe President Trump, then he has got to be the most misunderstood and unfairly attacked leader of the known world. But really, given his track record, you know, it's fair enough not to believe him, right? Well, the Apostle Paul, the writer of the letter of 2 Corinthians, unlike Trump, has had a great track record, and yet here he is being misunderstood and being attacked. And just to remind you, Paul was the pioneer apostle and messenger of Jesus to the non-Jewish world. He spent decades of his life traveling to and fro the known world, the Mediterranean, sharing the good news of Jesus, planting churches, growing and establishing them. At the time of this writing of this letter, he's even using his energies and his influence to help collect money to help poverty-stricken and famine-ravaged Christians in Jerusalem. You see, throughout his life in ministry, Paul has been nothing but exemplary. He's had a great track record full of integrity and love and humility. And yet, the very church he's planted and helped to establish here in the ancient Greek city of Corinth, this church had become hostile to him. They had begun to attack him and misunderstand him. They started to doubt Paul's love for them and doubt his sincerity towards them. And that's why, you see, he starts the, the passage the way he does in chapter 1, verse 12. We read it earlier, yeah? Paul is on the defensive. He's defending his integrity. He's defending his intentions. Now, this is a tricky passage. Uh, it's tricky because uh, we're actually listening in on a conversation between Paul and the Corinthians, but we only get to hear one side of the conversation. So we sort of have to piece together what's been happening in the background. And we'll do that in a moment. But this much is clear. Paul is forced to go on the defensive because he's been thought badly of and spoken badly of. He's been misunderstood. He's been attacked. There's tension and conflict and pain in his relationship between him and the people he loves so much, the church in Corinth. Now, how that ancient conflict and tension speaks to us today is this. In defending himself, Paul does not point to himself, but he points instead to the God he serves. And so he has a lot to say in the center of this passage, uh, verses 18 to 22 of chapter 1. And, and what he says there are so important for us because they're not just about him defending himself, right? Because they are verses that tell us about God. And how the way that we today should see God and see ourselves and see others in relation to what Paul says here about God. To cut a long story short, if you've ever doubted God's faithfulness and his sincerity towards you, or if you find being sincere and faithful hard in your dealings with others, 
or you just find it hard to see people around you in a positive, loving and forgiving light. If any of those things are true for you, then God has something really important to say to you today. All right, let me pray and then we'll get into it. Father, help us, even though we're separated uh, from the contents of this passage by a couple of thousand years and, and really a background we don't fully grasp, we know that you are still speaking to us. And I pray that you would speak to each one of us today. Help your word through your spirit to be relevant and powerful and life-changing. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my first point is background, because we'll need to firstly understand a little bit of the background to this conflict. And this much we can piece together from uh, both the account of Paul's travels in Acts, but also particularly from 1 and 2 Corinthians, the two letters we have of Paul to this church. So, at the end of 1 Corinthians, which is the first letter, um, Paul said that he would visit them again. Uh, After passing through Macedonia, which is to the north of Corinth, the north of Greece, uh, he would pass through Macedonia, go to Corinth, and perhaps spend the winter there. And it'd be sort of a longish sort of stay. But then after he wrote 1 Corinthians... He receives word from Timothy, his uh, apprentice and his co-worker, that something was seriously wrong in Corinth, that there was trouble brewing in the church. So Paul goes on an unexpected visit uh, to Corinth. And when he gets there, he finds himself the target of a huge and painful conflict. Now, we do not know all the details. But perhaps what happened was that, and this is what we can piece together and what a lot of commentators think, is that there was perhaps one church leader in particular who had rallied opposition against Paul. And in some way, this rebel leader had accused and confronted Paul in public or in front of the whole church. And the whole church had either sided with this leader or at least had just kept silent and just gone along with it. And so you can imagine Paul left Corinth extremely hurt and emotionally just beaten up. Now, at that point, he writes a letter to them. This letter, we don't have a copy of anymore. But he refers to this letter in the passage we just read in chapter 2, verses 2 to 4, if you want to have a look later. Uh, Commentators uh, just often call it the painful letter. Because in this letter, Paul rebukes them strongly. And he calls on them to exercise church discipline on this rebel leader. And then he also tells them that his plan now would be to visit them twice. Once on the way to Macedonia and another time after he visits Macedonia on the way back. So he sends this letter. But then after he sends a letter, well, he decides that it's probably best not to visit them in person just yet. So uh, he sends Titus, his co-worker, and Titus goes to Corinth to find out how they might have responded to the painful letter that he wrote. Whether they had taken any action to discipline this rebel leader and whether they perhaps even wanted to reconcile with Paul. Now, that is all the background as far as we can piece together. But with that in mind, hopefully help you understand a little bit about this passage we just read in 2 Corinthians, and and I I think going on as we read the rest of the letter. But um, let's anyway, let's summarize the core of their problem. What the core of the problem was with Paul, and this is my second point. What was their problem with Paul? Well, basically, it boiled down to two things, and both of them can start with the letter F. Firstly, they thought that Paul was fake. Right? They thought that Paul was fake, that Paul is not really sincere, he's not really genuine. He's all tough and rebukey in his letter, but when he gets there in person, he's sort of weak and unimpressive, and he's a bit two-faced. He's a fake. And most of all, they thought that Paul's love and concern for them was fake. If he really loved them, he wouldn't have written as he did. He wouldn't have acted the way he did. 
Yeah. And then that's related to the second F. They thought that Paul was secondly fickle. Right, fickle. Paul, they were led to believe, was unreliable. That's what fickle means. He makes plans and then he changes them. He makes promises and then he breaks them. Now he's going to visit them to spend the whole winter there. Then he changes plans. He was going to visit them twice, but then he changes plans again. Like Paul is fickle. He doesn't do what he says. He doesn't mean uh, what he says. Now, apparently, apparently in those days, it was a custom for some people uh, to have to say yes or no twice if you really want to know what they meant. And so, are you coming to my party? If the response is yes, then it's not really an RSVP. It's sort of like when you click going on Facebook, right? Everyone knows that you can back out of those. But if the response is yes, yes, well, then that's really a yes. Or no, no, that's really a no. Now, Paul, they thought, was kind of like that, that he would need to say yes, yes, and no, no, for you to really know what he means. All right, you got that? So you can see this is not a very good situation for Paul. There's a lot of relational strain between him and the Corinthians. It was brought about initially by this rebel leader, and probably just as time went on, lots of doubts about Paul and his character began to, to emerge and simmer and stew and... Now, you may have already picked up that by the time Paul wrote 2 Corinthians, that some of these issues had been resolved. Yeah, you, you get the hint, don't you? Um, for one, we read in 2 Corinthians that that rebel leader had already been disciplined by the whole church. And we know that the church was sorry, that they were really repentant. You get that in chapter 7, which we'll look at in a few weeks' time. And so uh, in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11, which uh, we, we didn't get to read earlier, but you might have looked at it in the CGs, uh, Paul actually tells them to, to not to continue to discipline this leader, this rebel leader, but to show him grace, which is pretty incredible. You think about it. I mean, after all the pain this person has caused him, Paul goes out of his way, takes the initiative to tell them, all right, enough is enough. Restore him. Okay, so we see that some of the issues have indeed been fixed. Some of the relationship has been restored. But Paul still needed to make sure that they didn't have any lingering doubts over his character and over his ministry. They can't go on thinking of him or have doubts about him as perhaps being even a little bit fake and fickle. Now, the reason why he needs them to understand that isn't because his pride is wounded. Right? That's how I think. That's how you think. That's not, not at all for Paul. For Paul, it's much more important because... His role as an apostle, as a messenger of Jesus, means he represents Jesus. And so if people doubt his character and his ministry as a messenger of Jesus, you see, that actually puts into question the message, the gospel message. And that to Paul is far too important for people to doubt. And so that's why in verses 18 to 22, of that central section, he is going to go on to remind them of God's faithfulness. And how God's faithfulness in this good news, this message of Jesus, shapes every aspect of his life and his ministry. And how it ought to shape ours as well. All right, and, and so that's where we'll spend the rest of our time today in those verses 18 to 22. So my third point, God's faithfulness. Let's look again at those verses. Verse 18. But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by us, by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. 
for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. All right, remember, they thought that Paul was fake and fickle. And to those charges, Paul lifts his finger and he points, not to himself and his track record. Where does he point? He points to God and God's track record, and specifically to God's track record in the gospel, the good news message about Jesus, the Son of God. And there, Paul firstly says, God's answer in Jesus is always yes. You see that in verse 19. In Jesus, in him, it has always been yes. Is God sincere in the way he deals with us in the world? Or is God a bit of a fake? Right? In good times, God turns his face to bless you. In bad times, he turns his face away to punish you. Is that what God is like? A bit like um, the Batman villain, Two-Face, you know? You never know which face you're going to get. He'll be a yes one day and a no the other day. Now, that actually may be your view of God, some of you here today. Maybe, especially when times are tough, you think, has God suddenly gone from nice God to, (coughs) pardon me, to nasty God? What does verse 19 tell you? God's word to the world through Jesus is not Yes, one day, no, another day. No, it has always been yes. God says to the world, God says to you, look at my son, Jesus. The fact that I gave him for you is rock solid proof that I am not against you. My answer to a world that has rebelled against me is not no. My answer to a world that has rejected me is actually still yes. And that's why I sent my son to come into the world Not to condemn the world, says John 3, but to sacrifice himself in order to save the world. Do you want to know if I love you, God says? You just have to look at Jesus. Because Jesus is my big yes to the world. My continual yes to you as well. You see, friends, even in this pandemic, even if this world should continue to spin out of control, Even in grief and loneliness, even in unemployment and poverty, even in sickness and death, God's word to his broken world is still yes. Even in your pain, God is saying to you, I am not against you, I am for you. If you ever doubt his love, his sincerity, his favor, remember verse 19. In Jesus, God's word is always yes. He's not fake. He's not two-faced. He is consistently and always loving and good. That's the first key idea from this bit. God is not a fake because his word is always yes in Jesus. Well, the second and related key idea is that all of God's promises are also yes in Jesus. God isn't fickle. Verse 20, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. Now, I want you for a moment to just get a handle on what a big claim this verse is making. No matter how many promises God has made. No matter how many promises God has made, no matter how many, 
promises God has made. How many promises has God made? Well, how do you begin to even count them, right? The whole Bible is full of God's promises. Yeah, God is the promise-making God. In fact, did you know that the whole Bible literally is, is structured around promises? It actually is. Old Testament, New Testament. Actually just means Old Covenant, New Covenant. Testament, Covenant, same idea. What is a covenant? A covenant is a relationship formalized and bound by promises. Promises. The whole Bible is a series of promises that build one on another like a giant Lego structure. It starts in Genesis. It ends in Revelation. It's all promises. And so get this, no matter how many promises God has made, they are all yes in Jesus Christ. Every promise fulfilled in Jesus. Every word kept in Jesus. Every pledge carried out in Jesus. I began talking about one U.S. president's words. Now let me now show you a clip from a former U.S. president. It's from 2008 when this president had just won his election. Have a look. This election had many firsts and many stories that will be told for generations, but one that's on my mind tonight is about a woman who cast her ballot in Atlanta. She is a lot like the millions of others who stood in line to make their voice heard in this election, except for one thing. Ann Nixon Cooper is 106 years old. She was born just a generation past slavery, a time when there were no cars on the road or planes in the sky, when someone like her couldn't vote for two reasons, because she was a woman and because of the color of her skin. And tonight, I think about all that she's seen throughout her century in America, the heartache and the hope the struggle and the progress, the times we were told that we can't, and the people who pressed on with that American creed, yes, we can. At a time when women's voices were silenced and their hopes dismissed, she lived to see them stand up and speak out and reach for the ballot. Yes, we can. When there was despair in the Dust Bowl and depression across the land, she saw a nation conquer fear itself with a new deal new jobs, a new sense of common purpose. Yes, we can. When the bombs fell on our harbor and tyranny threatened the world, she was there to witness a generation rise to greatness and a democracy was saved. Yes, we can. She was there for the buses in Montgomery, the hoses in Birmingham, a bridge in Selma, and a preacher from Atlanta who told the people that we shall overcome Yes, we can. A man touched down on the moon. A wall came down in Berlin. A world was connected by our own science and imagination. And this year, in this election, she touched her finger to a screen and cast her vote. Because after 106 years in America, through the best of times and the darkest of hours, she knows how America can change. Yes, we can. Well, whatever you think of uh, Obama and his politics, you've got to be impressed by the man and his charisma, right? Now, God wants you to know that when it comes to his promises, his motto is not, yes, we can. God's motto is, yes, I will. Right? No matter how many promises I've made, yes, I will. 
when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden and God promised to one day crush Satan, the serpent for good in Jesus, his answer is yes, I will. When a childless 100 year old man, Abraham stared into the night sky and God said he would have as many children as stars in the sky and through his children, the whole world would be blessed and the curse reversed in Jesus. God's answer is yes, I will. When his ancient people Israel was in exile and under his judgment, but he promised to send them and to send the world a savior who would suffer and die in their place for their sins and so deal with sin once and for all in Jesus, God's answer is, yes, I will. When God promises you and promises me to always be with us no matter what in Jesus, God's answer is, yes, I will. When he says, I promise to work all things for your good. In Jesus, his answer is, yes, I will. And when he says, I promise to provide for you, just like I provide for the birds of the air and the flowers in the field. And so you don't need to worry. In Jesus, his answer is, yes, I will. When he promises to help you fight sin in your life. When he promises to help you grow in faith, hope and love. To empower you to speak and witness for him to others. To give you gifts that you can serve with beyond your natural given abilities. To give you hope and resilience in times of trial. To be faithful to your household. Even to your unbelieving spouse and your children, his answer in Jesus is, yes, I will. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him, the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Amen. Can you say amen to that? Every promise God has made, he is either already fulfilled in Jesus or he guarantees he will fulfill in the future in Jesus. And in case we doubt his guarantee, he gives us a deposit, just like you would pay a deposit for something that you will one day pledge to pay, pay in full. Verse 21, look at that. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us and put his spirit in our hearts as a what? As a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. God has placed his deposit in us already by giving us his Holy Spirit. So friends, do you know this God personally? Do you know him personally? Because these promises, faithfulness is for his people given to his people through Jesus. And so if you are not yet one of his people, you haven't come to receive Jesus personally as your Lord and Savior, will you do that today? Or will you at least try to find out more about Jesus? We would love to help you do that. Please connect with us in the link below. So coming back to Paul and his conflict with the Corinthians, can you see why verses 18 to 22 are just so vital? Yeah? Uh, to the charges of being fake and fickle, Paul points to the God of yes. The God he serves is neither fake nor fickle, and so neither is he. And because God is not fake or fickle, neither can we be fake or fickle. And this is my final point. A yes-shaped life. Now, what I 
don't mean by this is that we can only say yes to people. Of course, that's not what I mean. But what God's yes in Christ should do is shape our lives to such an extent that we treat others in the way that God has treated us. And that, firstly, has got to be in the area of sincerity and faithfulness, yeah? Now, when we give our word and make promises, will people be able to see that we serve the God of yes, the God whose yes means yes and no means no, the God who is never fake and never fickle? Now, I reckon there are those among you who maybe especially need to pay attention to this. Those who, and I'll admit like me, don't like to make people unhappy, right? If you know you're a people pleaser, you'll especially find it hard to say no to people, right? And so you can often make promises that you can't follow through on later on. I wonder if that's you. Or if you, like again, like me, um, are good at talking. You're good at complimenting. You're good at socializing. You're good at using words to lead or direct or comfort people. Let's admit it, sometimes we say too much, don't we? We promise too much. We speak too many words and that we don't really mean. We can be insincere. Or if you're someone who's just not great at following through on commitments, maybe you're terribly disorganized or it's just FOMO, fear of missing out. So you delay making plans, delay committing. And when you do, you don't follow through and you don't stick at them. You, know, you give up easily, you get bored easily, you move on. Now, I don't know if any of those three examples have apply to you at all. But whatever the case, I hope you see that if we are the people of the God of yes, then we've got to be people who have integrity and sincerity and faithfulness when it comes to our commitments, when it comes to our promises, when it comes to our words. Yeah. Finally, one other thing. If God's word to a world that's hurt him and rejected him is still a yes, right? If his word to a world that's hated him is still, yes, I love you, well, that's got to shape the way we relate to those around us, right? Especially those who have hurt us, those we're in conflict with, those we find it impossible to forgive. Because, you see, that's what Paul was like, shaped by the God of yes. Paul chose to move towards the Corinthians in love, even though they doubted him and attacked him and slandered him and hurt him and caused him so much pain. He still moved towards them in love. And even when he changed travel plans, he says, it's not because he was being fickle. It was actually out of concern for them, out of love for them. He was trying to do what was best for them so they wouldn't be unnecessarily grieved. And when they repented, he was more than ready, wasn't he, to hold out forgiving arms. Even to that particular leader who, who may have instigated this whole thing. He takes the initiative to tell them, well, it's time to forgive him. It's time to receive him back. You see that in chapter 2, verses 5 to 11. Look, I know that church life can be hard. Right? We get hurt by people. We hurt people in turn. Now, if your heart has shriveled up in some way because of the pain that you've experienced through hard relationships within church, what might God be saying to you today? Or if you've been turning your face away as a no to someone because of hurt or conflict... How might God's yes to you change your attitude to them? Well, let me pray, finish up, before let's uh, have a discussion time with a discussion question I'll give you. But first, let's pray. Father God, thank you for speaking to us today through this passage. Even as we gain an insight into Paul 
and his conflict, we are reminded that you are the God whose yes means yes and no means no. And to the world, your word is always yes in Christ. Help us through your Holy Spirit, that wonderful deposit in us. Help him change us so that we might be people who reflect your character and your yes to us in Christ. In Jesus' name. Amen. So here's a discussion question. Have a look at it. In what ways is God's yes in Jesus challenging your attitude, words, and actions towards others? Right. In what ways is God's yes in Jesus challenging your attitude, words, and actions towards others? All right. I hope God has blessed you through his word today, and uh, we'll see you next week.